As we come to our time in the Word this morning, last week we preached, or I preached, from Colossians 3, 5 through 9. And I did so talking about the need to put to death ourselves. And so we had the death of self, and this morning I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to Colossians 3, and I want to bring to you a message I have titled, The Rise of Christ. And so we have the death of self and the rise of Christ. As always, I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, and I'll begin in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, wrath of God, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You may be seated. A five-year-old girl was having a hard day, one of those troubled-filled days with her mother. It seemed they spent all day arguing back and forth, and finally the mom finally said, Jenny, go sit in the corner right now, and do not move until I tell you to. Jenny went to the corner and sat down, and in a few minutes she called back, Mom, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. We find that story humorous, and indeed it is, because we also know it's truthful. Sometimes we have been that child, and other times we've had other people act towards us in that way. The person in such a way may show that by their actions they comply, but by their attitude they really refuse to acquiesce. And while we laugh, such a story really does capture a deep biblical truth that we can live an outwardly conformed life but never live inwardly transformed. By all appearances, on the exterior, everything looks great, almost perfect, we may say, but the inward turbulence is never revealed. A few weeks ago, I decided to take advantage of some time away I had headed to some meetings that were north of here, and I grabbed a hotel for one night with the intentions of just trying to get some work done, things that I, I was falling behind on. As many hotels are doing these days, this one in particular, this chain even, advertised that they were taking extra steps to make sure that everything was more clean than it was before. You've probably seen this everywhere. We see it in hotels and airplanes. We see it even in coffee shops and restaurants. 
everywhere. Everybody is taking extra steps to make sure things are clean. To be truthful, I, I find that concerning because that implies they weren't doing a good job before. <laughs> Makes me wonder what they weren't doing. At this hotel, though, it was posted everywhere. It was on the signs and on the door when you entered. It was there when you checked in. It was on signs inside your hotel room and outside your hotel room. It's even on the app on my phone for this particular chain. So as I got to my room and seek to get things done, I, I put everything down and began to move things around and organize the room in a way that suited me. I requested this room because it had this huge desk, it's six foot long work table. And so I wanted to spread everything out on that table and organize things so I could work in a way that functioned for me. And so I, I did that. I pushed the couch to one side. I grabbed one of the chairs that I thought was best to work from at that desk and, and began to catch up on things that I needed to do. Rarely did I move over that time from that spot except going to the bathroom to get food from the refrigerator or a glass of water. But each time I got up, I began to notice things. It began by first seeing that there were a bunch of wrappers on the floor. And I, I couldn't figure out where those wrappers came from because they certainly weren't mine. And then I noticed some crumbs. And little by little, I began to notice more and more as I examined deeper. The list goes on. And all very, very little things. From the outside, the room indeed did look great. But upon examination... Internally, it hadn't really been taken care of. Next, next morning when I got up to go take a shower, I noticed some mold on the wall by the faucet. It was minimal, and truthfully, it didn't bother me. I didn't even mention it to the front desk. I could care less. We've dealt with that before. But I was struck by something. Now, the walls of this shower were like what many hotels are doing, and they were pretty smooth. And they're designed that way so that they're easy to wipe down. You don't have to worry about grout or things like that. It's just a quick wipe and they're clean. The amount of mold told me this doesn't grow just overnight. It means they haven't cleaned this or wiped that area at least down for several days. By their words, they were outwardly conforming to the expectations being placed upon them. From probably their chain, from their managers from the world at this time. But by their actions, they remained unchanged. Addressing a national seminar of Southern Baptist leaders, George Gallup shared and said, we find there is very little difference in ethical behavior between churchgoers and those who are not active religiously. The levels of lying, cheating, and stealing are remarkably similar in both groups. Eight out of ten Americans consider themselves Christians, Gallup said. And yet, only about half of them could identify the person who gave the Sermon on the Mount. And fewer still could recall the Ten Commandments, or even a couple of the Ten Commandments. And only two in ten said they would be willing to suffer for their faith. This is indicative of what we tend to do. We tend to perfect what people will see on the outside without caring about what's on the inside. We want to put forth and present ourselves as perfect to those who are watching. But on closer examination, we start to realize there's mold in our lives. As we continue through our text, Paul has this recurring agenda in the book of Colossians. 
to bring inward belief into conformity with outward behavior. <coughs> the behavior looks great on the outside, but if it's not matched by belief on the inside, then it's meaningless on the outside. Paul begins the call of Colossians 3 by persuading the Colossian believers to set their minds on the things of heaven and not on the things of earth. To be like Christ, one must have a mind like Christ. Only with a mind on Christ, then can we have a life on Christ. Having established that necessity in the first four verses of the chapter, he then issues a call to put off anything that is not of Christ. And instead, put on anything that is of Christ. Readers are given two lists, beginning first with sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desires, and covetousness. But then he jumps down and goes further, saying, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. All things we talked about last week. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive list but rather it draws attention to how deeply embedded sin is in the Christian. It's not merely this list of things to put off as really so dramatic. What makes it dramatic is it says to put it to death. This is a summons of decisive action, rendering sin dead so that it is rendered ineffective. This is a call of intentional separation with sin so that it can no longer have any influence on a believer's life. The call is made more dramatic when we recognize who made this call. The Apostle Paul might be the author writing down these words, but first off, it was affected through the Holy Spirit and ultimately by the word of Christ. This is no random person on the street. This isn't somebody just in our lives. This isn't even somebody who's just in a position of authority in this world. This is the Christ. He is the one who has all power. He is all-knowing and thus has all authority, charging believers to set aside anything that is inconsistent with him. This is the call of the Christ. I want you to note now the Christ of the call. Reading in verses 6 and 7, says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Fulfilling the call to put to death these abominations would be impossible without these verses. Had these words been, not been included in the middle of our passage, the Christian life would be a life of not only striving after God, but doing so in despair because a person would never reach God. They present for us two aspects of Christ's work, drawing attention not just to who believers are, but who Christ is. Our attention is drawn first to this terrifying response of God, his wrath, which in the end is mediated through Christ. Matthew Henry writes, As God's mercies are new every morning towards his people, so his anger is new every morning against the wicked. Because sin is a declaration of one's rejection of God's authority and God's attributes and God's activity, it is no surprise that the Lord must respond. The wrath of God is a product of his other attributes. 
Marshan of the second century would suggest, or did suggest, that the wrath of God was an unworthy description of God. And so we should never talk about that. This is a view that still holds sway over people today. In one recent study of prevailing beliefs, 97% of people said they believe God is forgiving. 96% of people said they believe God is loving. But when you discuss God's wrath, only 37% of people believe God judges sin. And only 19% believe he punishes sin. Those who believe that God is loving but not judging, forgiving but not punishing, fail to understand that it is because he is loving that he is punishing. The wrath of God is a necessary result of who God is. It is a product of his character. Looking to the well-known text of Habakkuk, it stipulates chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, wrath. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? There's a lot to unpack in that verse, and we're not going to take the time. I want you to see, though, that the author knows that because of God's holiness, he sees evil and perceives wickedness at a far deeper level than any human ever could. Implied by his question in verse 13, Habakkuk suggests that because of God's holiness, the Lord can't even look upon wrong. And in fact, he's obligated to respond to it. If God did not judge sin, he would not be holy. And if he was not holy, he wouldn't be God. Speaking further to this point, A.W. Pink indicates that God's wrath is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. Perhaps one of the most surprising aspects of God's wrath is not just that it is a function of God's character, but it takes the form of man's character. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that wrath is something that comes from God. It is then a function of his character. But the form of God's wrath sometimes takes the form of our character. The wrath of God is the result of who God is. And sometimes it takes the form of who God is, who men are. Sometimes the severest form of judgment that God can bring and administer is to hand people over to themselves. Romans chapter 1, three times we see God's wrath displayed by turning people over to themselves. Granted, these are primarily talking about unbelievers. But in verse 24, it says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then he goes on in that passage to explain unnatural sexual relations. And then verse 28 concludes, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up 
to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. The wrath of God is to give people up over to their desires, lust, passions, and their depraved minds. Notice how much that list matches what the believers are told to put off in verse 5 of our text. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. The very thing we spoke of last week is the very thing that God sometimes uses as judgment. That should speak to the wickedness of sin. It is so horrible and horrendous that God uses it as punishment. To quote God, he, he says it is a dreadful thing to fall out of the hands, fall into the hands of a living God. But then he goes on and does say it is also an, a dreadful thing to fall out of the hands of a living God. To be left to oneself in a world where the choice of evil things brings its own retribution. I want to be very cautious here because I'm not saying that God causes us to sin. That would be heretical. What we do see is that God is simply allowing people to just follow their own ways. To do what they were going to do anyway, and he just backs off. He removes his common grace to restrain sin and, and allow people to not only go fulfill their desires, but then also to bear the consequences. From John 3.36, we know that in one sense, all the unconverted remain under a continuous state of wrath. But if we pay attention to our text in Colossians 3.6, notice what it says. The wrath of God is coming. This is a warning that something more severe is coming to those who do not turn their lives over to Christ. As we read last week from Ephesians chapter 5, a warning was issued with these words. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God seeks out those who have ignored the summons of God. It is awesome in power, and it is awful in practice. And though it may not be revealed now, the fullness is coming. It is inevitable, and yet it is also avoidable. Revelation 19, something we read several weeks ago, shows that the ultimate wrath is mediated through Christ. He will come on a white horse, and it says, called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This incredible picture of God's wrath is frightful. But it should also instill into us a fear of God. We must never forget that not only is God's wrath a picture of his holiness, but it comes out of his love. One of the things that we must be cautious of is making sin God's problem, not man's. When we make sin God's problem, we, we say things like, well, God dislikes this, God disproves of this, he doesn't want this, which may be true, but when we do that, then sin becomes something we, we just want to avoid so that we can avoid God's judgment and God's punishment. Or we try to hide it, hoping we don't get caught. But we have to remember that sin is not God's problem. Sin is our problem. 
When it's our problem, then we take the responsibility and we bear the consequences. We begin to not only see then the need for God to punish sin, but we will see that God's coming wrath is a loving act. The love of God compels the wrath of God. And here it means that he's trying to capture people's attention and draw them to him, to convince them to turn from the depths of their depravity. If God indeed were unloving, he wouldn't do that. Choosing instead to leave people to permanently perish in their sins. But because God is loving, he doesn't want that state for them. We must remember that our God is both good and and loving, meaning that he seeks what is in the best interest of his own glory and the best interest of the good of his people. That's what we see in our text. Desiring the interest of people, God's wrath is coming. And if there's any doubt to this point, look at what occurred in the Corinthians, where Paul offers some hope, saying this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. With those words, we see a list far worse than what we even read in Colossians. This is a horrible thing. We see how awful people are, and obviously how awful the Corinthians were. And yet, what did God do at the end of that? He rescued the people. He continued to rescue them. The wrath of God is a loving act by which he's encouraging people to simply divest themselves of the interest in this world. And as we read from our scripture reading this morning from Romans 6, to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Man's unholiness will always draw out God's holiness. It will come in the form of his wrath step further into Colossians 3 and notice not only the wrath of God mediated through Christ, but I want you to see the walk of the Christian alleviated by Christ. Verse 7 says, In these you two once walked when you were living in them. With these words, Paul indicates that those things were the character of the Colossians' walk. That's who they used to be. Living in the culture of the world, they indulged their flesh by living in the flesh. But the Colossians, they've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Chapter 1, verse 13. With their citizenship now in heaven, the Colossians and any believer no longer need to live as citizens of the world much like a missionary who's going to go overseas, that missionary adjusts to a new culture. They begin to take on a new lifestyle. They adopt the clothes, they adopt the food, adopt even the schedule of everybody over there. The same concept is in play here. Having been citizens of the world, indeed, they lived like citizens of the world. But now, they are citizens of heaven. And so the call is to adopt a lifestyle 
the one who is in heaven. To quote Colossians 2.6, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The repeated warnings of Paul here suggest that the Colossian church finds itself retreating to its old ways. In his commentary on Colossians, Mark Johnson draws attention to something very important, and he observes that if they once walked in those ways, why then were they drifting back into that old lifestyle? It is a mark of the deceitfulness of sin that it causes spiritual amnesia in those who have been delivered from particular sins. The ongoing warnings that Paul has to repeat time and time again show us that the power of unchecked sin is in play. And it reminds readers the need to set their minds on the things above and thus set their intentions on those heavenly things. As we saw in verse 1, there's a great hope in this verse, though. And that hope comes in the form of the word when. The verse says, in those you two once walked when you were living in them. Indeed, there was a time when they were living in these ways. But now, apparently, there's no longer a need to live in those ways. So not only does our text command people to put off the earthly sins, but the implication of the text is it's possible to do so. Do you hear the expectation of that? Does that not bring us great joy to know that none of us is left to perish in our sin, but rather a believer is liberated from that stronghold? Where does such hope come from? Paul explains this in a parallel text in Ephesians chapter 2. We read first in verses 1 through 3, in the first three verses, of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We have before us the depravity of man. But while that is on display, we come to verse 4, and it gives us confidence. And verse 4 of that text begins with a single word. And we see the rescue of the Lord by that word. It says, but God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the words of Douglas Moo, putting death to death is not just Christ's command, but it is affected and empowered by him. With his work on the cross, Christ overcame sin's penalty of death so that those who trust in that work are no longer able or no longer obligated to the restrictions of sin. 
I read to you Colossians 1.13, or referenced it, but Colossians 1.12 points out through Paul that it is God who qualified each person for heaven. And then you go to verse 14, and he tells us both how God did that and the effect of it. Saying that redemption comes not just by, comes by the work of Christ. It brings about the forgiveness of sins. How is it that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ allows one who believes those to then overcome the effects of sin? And not just overcome the effects, but is able to overcome the impetus to sin. I want to pause long enough and say we we have to remember that the work of Christ is not merely to do away with the effects of sin. The ultimate death. His work was to abolish sin. To get rid of it. To eradicate it. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Once again, not only does Christ do away with the effects of sin, the death and the destruction, but he rids people of sin. And then if you read further in the next verse, it says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So how is a person getting rid of sin? By abiding in Christ. This is the great war that is taking place within us within our heart. It's not, are we keeping the world out of our heart? It's, are we putting Christ into our heart? Overcoming our inclination towards sin means replacing that sin with something greater, replacing it with Christ. Ultimately, our desire for a Savior must be greater than our desire to sin. Consider the words of one philosopher who said, knowing God without knowing our wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our wretchedness. One of the tremendous aspects of this text is its immediacy. Verses 6 and 7 give readers a, a picture of the past, the present, and the future. Notice the past tense, the verb walk saying that they once walked in these ways. Those indulging sin on an ongoing basis, showing themselves to be set against God, by, as we saw, and by this they are called children of wrath by Paul in Ephesians. Yet that wrath is delayed. So they once walked, but then we see the wrath, and the verse says it is coming. That's future tense. So we have our past tense, we have our future tense. Do you know what that signifies? The wrath of God is coming. Do you know what that tells us about God? That he is patient and loving. Because it would be at his prerogative to judge sin at any given moment. To bring about the immediate damnation and destruction eternally for anybody. But that's not what he does here. It says the wrath of God is coming, affording everyone the opportunity to turn to him. While judgment's not immediate, though, Jesus is. But these words, that they once walked in these ways, Paul also is saying, but now 
You don't. Present tense. You may have been that way. The wrath of God is coming. But right now, you're not walking in those ways. Therefore, you don't need to worry about the wrath. That's by confessing Christ and trusting Christ. He has put to death sin in a believer's life so that they no longer feel compelled to indulge in it. I'm challenged by Spurgeon's question. Christian, what have you to do with sin? Has it not cost you enough already? Burnt child, will you play with fire? In setting our minds on heaven and on the heavenly things, every believer is someone to put to death what is earthly. The call begins first with the obvious sins, the sexual sins that we saw. The, the order next places our attention on the necessity of putting away those sins that may not be as obvious, that anger and the wrath and the malice. Before indulging any feelings of despair and despondency, before any of us lose hope with the question, how can I achieve such an impossibility? We must never forget that the call of Christ always comes with the Christ of the call. Never to leave one languishing in the invitation. The invitation of Christ always comes with the industry of Christ. Christ labors both with his people and for his people. In this text alone, we see the wrath of God mediated through Christ, seeking to capture the attention of the believers that they may always fixate on him. And we see the walk of the believer alleviated through Christ, made possible by Christ, because it is Christ who works for them, for those who follow him. Wherever Christ issues a call, excuse me, wherever Christ issues a call is where he will be at that moment. And with him come three benefits to every believer. First, he labors exhaustively. Ahead of the believer, he he overtakes and abolishes the effects of sin. Second, he labors intensely alongside the believer, annihilating sin itself. And third, he labors intentionally before the believer, advocating when sin sometimes does intrude into our lives. This is more than a list of do's or don'ts. Through the hand of Paul, our text is issuing a call from Christ. Only when one's mind is set on things above and one has made this decisive action by the work of the Spirit to set aside those things incompatible with a heavenly mindset, only then will we leave behind what is earthly. To set aside such behavior requires a believer to set aside self-righteousness. Putting on the humility of Christ, the believer then banishes his self-exaltation and instead begins with self-examination. Self-confrontation at this level is difficult because it exposes the heart to the cross of Christ. The truthful evaluation, it acts like alcohol when it's cleaning out a wound, a fresh wound. It stings us, it, it causes us to smart some, and may even cause us to yell out a little bit. But that's the effect of internal cleansing, not just the outward appearance, The internal cleansing sometimes is going to hurt. But having done so, it it not only cleans out the wound from what was already there, but it also prevents a recurrence of the issue and further infection. 
This is the call that is being issued. The call is to protect us from further infection of sin. God's not just calling people away from things that they love, as some people try to portray him. No, he's, he's calling people away from what will harm them. And that's what these list of sins will do. Because of its penetrating and painful nature, few people are willing to expose themselves to this level of scrutiny. Especially publicly. Not that it always needs to be done publicly. But sometimes not even privately. Many sing, turn your eyes on Jesus, but for many, the world strangely hasn't grown dim. It is the death of self that brings about the rise of Christ in our lives. The question now becomes, are we so content and comfortable that we will ignore this confrontation of Christ in our lives? Or we will, will we await the wrath of Christ until we are finally convinced to turn towards him? <clears throat> to quote one man, if I had a brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Let's pray. Our Father God, We come before you grateful for the opportunity to examine our lives, Lord. As difficult and painful as that may be sometimes, Lord, we're thankful that we can do so because in doing so, it exposes us more to you. That we see more of your character, more of your, your grace and your mercy and your love, even in the wrath that you sometimes have, which is a necessity so, Father, I, I pray and, and ask that you would lead us further into this examination. Expose us to yourself. Expose us to the cross of Christ, Lord. Father, con convict us and align us with your will, Lord. Help us to see that it was sin that placed your, sin, your son on the cross. And, and, Father, may we not want to be friends with that sin. But rather, may we seek you daily. May we do, do so by, by being in your word, by an ongoing relationship with you, by accountability with one another. And in all things, may it just point us to a greater, deeper relationship with you through your son, Christ. So, Father, we thank you for this morning, committing this time to you, just asking for you to continuously work in your heart, our hearts and make yourself known to us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.